we need to talk about the rule of law. A podcast by Verfassungsblock and Deutscher Anwaltsverein. We need to talk about financial sanctions. As our podcast comes to an end, the year and the German presidency of the European Council do too. One of the foremost projects of the German presidency has been to link EU funding and compliance with rule of law standards. The mechanism is going to be a part of the next long-term budget of the Union, starting from 2021. That is, if Hungary and Poland vote in favor of it, which is increasingly unclear at the moment, and other alternatives for approving the budgets are being sought. The connection of rule of law violations and EU money, the advantages and shortcomings of financial sanctions for member states, as well as how things stand on the current proposal, that's what we will discuss in this week's episode of We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law that we will wrap up with an outlook on the current state of the Union, rule of law-wise. Our fantastic guests for our final episode are Sergei Lagodinsky, a member of the European Parliament and Vice Chair of the Parliament's Committee on Legal Affairs, and Kim Lane Schepple, the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Professor of Sociology and International Affairs in the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs and the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. A note from us, Michael Roth, the Minister of State for Europe at the Federal Foreign Office of the Federal Republic of Germany, was also scheduled to appear on this week's episode, but had to cancel on short notice due to conflicting appointments. I'm Leonard Kokot, a member of Verfassungsblock's editorial team. Happy to have you on the show. Professor Schepler, I would like to begin by asking you what the case for financial sanctions in the rule of law context of the European Union is and what the EU institutions have agreed upon now with regard to financial sanctions. Being discussed for some time and uh, the reason for going to financial sanctions is that we now have two member states that are very overtly violating the basic principles of the European treaties, which is to say, if these two countries were in the shape they're in now at the time that they were joining, they would not be let in. So the question is, what can be done about that? And there's a mechanism in the treaty, Article 7 of the Treaty of the European Union, that would permit a state to be sanctioned for activity in violation of European norms. But at some point in the in the road to sanctions, it requires a unanimous vote of all of the other member states except the sanctioned state. So that's a mechanism that only works if you have only one rogue state. And now we have two. And moreover, we have two that are in a pact with each other that have said that each one will block sanctions from the other. So the primary mechanism in the treaties that was designed to handle a situation like this is already... Um, it, it cannot be used. So the question is, what else can be done? And one answer is nothing, because this is the only mechanism in the treaties. And that's certainly what, for example, the government of Hungary is now saying. But the other thing is to say, well, why should the EU support and fund and underwrite governments that are so violating European principles that they actually cause problems for the other member states? And so this is now the new strategy, I think, which has always been there. I think the possibility has always been there in EU law 
to look at and cut and suspend the funds of member states that are using them for inappropriate purposes. And so this new rule of law conditionality mechanism, a new regulation, which by the way, is no longer called the rule of law regulation in its title, but nonetheless has this as its background. This is designed to provide an avenue for the commission to assess when the rule of law problems in a member state affect the way that EU money is spent. And that is uh, what's currently on the table. That's what's causing now a veto by Hungary and Poland of the entire budget, the multi the multi-annual financial framework, as well as the recovery fund. So what you see is that these countries think this might bite. They don't want to give up their money. And so they're going to try to stop the money for everybody else. And that's where we sit. Uh, thank you very much. Um, institutionally, how does this compromise look like from the perspective of a parliamentarian, Mr. Lagodinsky? Well, it's a um, it's a weak result, but it's a result based on consensus, and that's um, unfortunately or fortunately uh, one of the features of this interinstitutional cooperation in the uh, European Union. Of course, we would have wished um, a, um, a mechanism um, of conditionality which would be more um, uh, based on the proposal of the Commission. Uh, um, there are especially two main problems with uh, the mechanism that we're seeing now. One is uh, the issue of scope. Um, what are the um, reasons, uh, the grounds, uh, uh, which allow um, the EU to um, impose such sanctions or whatever you want to call it? You know, some people say you shouldn't call it sanctions. Um, but um, uh, the initial uh, um, position was, and our position is, the, the, the scope should be as, as broad as possible. It should uh, uh, be basically all uh, values which are enshrined into Article 2 uh, of the European uh, Union Treaty. Um, and there was a push to limit the scope. Uh, this was a, a result of the deal that uh, Merkel and other states made uh, with the Hungarians and Poles uh, during the Uh, summer negotiations. Uh, maybe the listeners remember these two uh, memorable days, or even more, uh, the, the long weekend. Five, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, <laughs> it, 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 um, it seems like to be an endless, uh, endless negotiation. And uh, then th th there was an attempt to narrow down the scope to only um, uh, such deficiencies that impact directly uh, spending of EU money. Um, and it, it took a lot of efforts by my colleagues from the parliament uh, and also by people from the commission um, to push back and uh, to arrive at a consensus which now is a little bit broader uh, than it was intended uh, by the enemies of the mechanism. Let's uh, call them with their real names. Um, and uh, now it, it, it should be about values you know, it's deficiencies or infringement of values of the EU, which have a potential risk of affecting uh, EU money spending, which opens a window of opportunity for a little bit of a broader application. Um, so this is the problem number one. And the problem number two, which is more substantial and which was not solved to our um, um, satisfaction, is the question of uh, what majority Uh, do we need to launch and to confirm uh, this, this, this mechanism and to confirm the sanctions? Um, the Commission 
proposal was the so-called reversed qualified majority proposal that is in order to stop the process, to stop imposing uh, these uh, sanctions, you would need a qualified majority of states, member states. This was in, in turn reversed uh, by this new proposal and it was not possible uh, to reverse it back. So now uh, the Commission, uh, European Commission can propose um, uh, imposing the, those sanctions, but this has to be confirmed by the qualified majority of states. And this is a big problem because it means someone has to arrange for the necessary majorities. Um, someone has to initiate the procedure. Okay, we can say the commission is going to be, but knowing the commission, commission is a very timid animal. Uh, uh, and we know this, Kim can uh, confirm, you know, talking to Commissioner Reinders, to many others, they do not want to risk too much in the legal uh, realm and on the legal or political level. So they will always be very hesitant uh, to launch a, 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 a procedure where they're not sure of getting the uh, qualified majority of votes. And this will always be the case. It will be always a risky endeavor. So to, uh, to answer your question, we are happy that this mechanism is there finally, but we're not very happy um, that it is not always realistic and as effective as we could, would have wished at the beginning. And as a result of um, the current proposal, Poland and Hungary threatened to veto um, the next EU budget. How do um, these rogue member states, as you have called them, um, Professor Schäppler, how do they react um, to uh, the current proposal and do they fear, in your opinion, that this is going to be efficient and is it going to be efficient? Yes, well, I'm, I've been a little bit uh, concerned that uh, Hungary and Poland have reacted so strongly to this, given how much the proposal was watered down from its original proposal by the Commission and given that the Parliament also would have made this stronger. So one of the things I'm concerned about is that Hungary and Poland are not just after uh, re removing this potential mechanism, but I think they want to use their bargaining leverage for something else. After that July summit, that endless July summit, um, Viktor Orban came back to Hungary and said to the Hungarian media that Angela Merkel had promised him that the Article 7 procedures currently pending against Hungary and Poland at the General Affairs Council would be dropped before the end of the German presidency. And I think this is what Orban really wants, that because he doesn't want any monitoring mechanism hanging over him. And I think that the Hungarians and the Poles have weakened the current regulation to the point where it's going to be very difficult to use for all the reasons that Sergei mentioned. But it's also the case that there's another mechanism. So even though Article 7 can't go through to sanctions, these articles, so-called Article 7, 1 procedures are before the General Affairs Council. And what that means is that Hungary and Poland can be called in for questioning essentially at almost any time. And I think that's what Orban is trying to get dropped. And he wants to get it dropped while, frankly, while Angela Merkel is in the rotating presidency, because she would rather compromise than, than you know, uh, double down on this kind of sanctioning mechanism. And I think Orban has convinced uh, the Poles that they might also get this procedure dropped. And so that is my biggest worry. And I think it's really important to say publicly that we need to keep our eye 
on what's happening in that council because it's true that if if the German rotating presidency brings up this issue, just just calls the vote, it will fail because there aren't. This is the problem with needing a four fifths majority in the General Affairs Council. They don't have it, and everybody knows it. And all the German presidency would have to do is call the question. And these two motions, after all of this effort to get them in place, would fail. So I'm extremely worried about side deals here. And I really hope everyone keeps their eye on the agenda of the General Affairs Council, because that's where I'm afraid the dirty deed will be done. Um, you have pointed out that um, Hungary in particular is afraid of the Article 7 proceedings in a way. So, and now it, but now in, 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 in the public opinion, I think it looks like um, that financial sanctions are going to be the next big thing when it comes to um, trying to preserve the rule of law. Would you say that in general, Article, Article 7 proceedings are um, more efficient or would be the better way? Wouldn't they be so flawed politically um, for preserving the rule of law or are financial sanctions really the way to go? So, um, so Article 7 is actually a well-designed mechanism in the treaties in the sense that what you would like to do is it, it's open-ended about sanctions. So it would remove the vote of the offending member state in the council, which would mean no blocking vote on the budget. And for this standpoint, if they had started this against Hungary when they should have, it would have been ideal. The problem, of course, like I said, is that you can't use that mechanism. So what about cutting funds? Well, this is where I think that Poland and Hungary are actually slightly different. So in Hungary, Viktor Orban has stayed in power precisely because he has been expert at taking public funds and directing them into private pockets. I don't think Orban believes all the ideology that he speaks. He's sort of a chameleon, politically speaking, but really all of this is about the money for him. And if he doesn't have money to pass around to all of his allies, I think it would greatly weaken him at home. And that's why he's fighting this hard to try to avoid any sanctions or any monitoring. Now, one thing everybody should know, because, you know, Orban is, um, I think he's preparing for this. He knows that he might lose this battle. And so what he's done is introduced a constitutional amendment back home that is one line and fairly technical. And I don't think people have grasped the significance of it. But in this new constitutional amendment, the Hungarian government proposes to change the definition of public funds. And why does that matter? It matters because what it would do is allow the Hungarian government to funnel money, including EU money, into a whole network of things that are called public foundations. And public foundations, um, if this constitutional amendment goes through, the money would go to public foundations and the state audit office could no longer track it. They've set up a public foundation now which has 500 media outlets in it that all support the government. They're now privatizing the entire university system so that each university will have a private foundation. The National Bank has a whole series of private foundations, uh, I'm sorry, public foundations. I mean, the difference is actually only, uh, only words, not in, in meanings, right? But, um, but anyway, as soon as money is given to a public foundation, it will disappear from the state audit office, it will disappear from the state books, and nobody will be able to trace where it goes. So I think that is now their mechanism because, you know, the EU relies on the national, uh, relies on governments to be honest, 
right? And if the state audit office in Hungary is not tracking what happens to EU funds, there's no way the commission will know what happens to EU funds. They rely on the state to, to follow these things. And this is, I think, where the Hungarian government is going. If it can beat this thing, if it can keep the EU money flowing, what will happen is that it will just disappear into private pockets, but not be, But first it will disappear into these public foundations. And from there it will disappear into private pockets. So they're already setting up a mechanism to avoid any kind of financial sanctions if the financial sanctions regulation is actually passed. So that sounds like, and, and you, you have touched upon the Hungarian government funneling EU money into its own pockets. Um, could you, could, would you say that EU money has, um, up until this point, allowed renegade governments to turn autocratic? And what is the role, for example, of the EPP and of the Social Democrats with their affiliates in Hungary on the one hand and Malta and Romania on, on the other hand in this? Um, Mr. Lagodinsky, do they take um, do they own up to their political uh, responsibility in calling out um, uh, governments that show that kind of behavior? I mean, for, first of all, I, I think it's important to say that it's not the EU money that creates uh, uh, corruption. It's the local politicians uh, uh, who use uh, the EU money for themselves uh, who create uh, corruption. And yes, um, it is, of course... Um, you know, there are so many players and there are so many actors in, in this uh, big uh, political European game. And one of those actors are, of course, the so-called political families, right? The party families. Um, and many people, uh, uh, of course, heard about the Fides um, um, and EPP connection. We know that Fides has been a member of the uh, conservative Uh, family for a very long period of time. Now their membership uh, has been um, suspended uh, for a time being from the European Party, People's Party, but not, interestingly, from the uh, parliamentary group. So that means basically uh, the infamous now uh, Herr Zaya, Mr. Zaya, um, Josef Zayer, um, was member of my uh, legal uh, affairs committee where he was sitting side by side, you know, near the uh, colleagues from CDU, like Axel Foss and others. They were together. They were, they were doing the same thing. There was no difference. You couldn't tell the difference um, uh, during the discussions, which was quite irritating because especially at the beginning when I became the member of, uh, of this committee, I was like, yeah, but I thought that they were excluded and now they're, They're playing the same game. No, uh, in the parliament, they have a normal um, uh, cooperation with each other. And uh, that is, of course, something that uh, make many of us pause. And we know now that there is this initiative within um, the European People's uh, uh, Party uh, parliamentary group to exclude one, one member uh, of the Fides um, uh, group because he has offended... Uh, uh, the chair of the group, Mr. Weber. These people have been offended, offending civil society, uh, citizens of their own country for decades, for, well, well, not for decades, but for, for many years, almost a decade. Yeah, it's, it's a long, long period of time. And that was not enough for our colleagues from the conservative 
uh, group to exclude them uh, from the party uh, from the party group just because they were afraid of losing uh, political influence or maybe becoming a little bit smaller. I think this is a disgrace. And of course, we have similar questions or we had similar questions um, uh, for our um, social democratic uh, friends and colleagues uh, regarding other countries. So m m both of these uh, groups have uh, their problems. But to be honest, if we look at the liberal group, we also have their um, uh, members who, for example, have a coalition with fascists in Estonia. Yeah, so it's, it's not a, a kind of a, a singularity of the conservative group. But in this particular case, this is especially flagrant uh, because we have a situation where um, uh, uh, Orban has been destroying a country, the democracy, and now he is destroying the European Union. And sitting with them together in solidarity in one uh, uh, political group uh, is by now, I think, I would say a disgrace. And I think that our uh, conservative colleagues should really draw consequences, uh, especially now that a lot of conservative politicians are being basically um, uh, you know, put under enormous pressure uh, by the government in Budapest. Um, thank you very much. You've, you've, you've said that um, Mr. Orban is on, on, on his way now to destroy the European Union and um, this leads perfectly to my next question which would be whether it is um, sort of the ugly underbelly of a political union that political alliances um, like between um, the Fidesz and the EPP um, or in uh, particular member states as, as you have pointed out outweigh efficient rule of law measures is that what we are seeing in this um, in this period of time um, and in, in these weeks where, where um, the EU tries to um, decide on, on efficient rule of law measures. Um, question goes to both of you. Um, Professor Schreppel, would you like to start? Yeah, so, so Orban doesn't want to kill off the EU. I mean, we have this expression that it's like killing the goose that lays the golden egg. So again, if you think of Orban as being really all about money, You know, the EU provides enough money for Orban to stay in power. This is the money he uses to support all of his colleagues who in turn prop him up at home. And I agree completely with Sergei by, you know, saying EU money is not the corrupting factor, it's the local politicians. And, and so Orban needs the EU because he needs this money. That's why he's acting so desperately um, exactly at the moment. Um, and so, but what he'll do is he'll use any leverage he has. Now, one thing to remember, it's often said, of course, that Angela Merkel is the longest serving member of the European Council. And that's true only if you count continuous years. She's been there 12 years. Orban's been there for 10 continuous years. But he was prime minister for four years before, which is to say that he has spent a great part of his political career being a member of the European Council. He knows what buttons to push. He knows, I think, how far to go. He knows how to use his leverage. And here's this moment when the budget is going through, which is one of the few moments when every member state exercises a veto and can bargain for whatever they want across the board. And he's going to use this moment for all it's worth. So I think it's important not to underestimate how much Viktor Orban knows about the EU. He knows, among other things, that there will be no sanction, no punishment, nothing that would put Hungary to disadvantage that would be a surprise 
everything comes with a long way off and tons of dialogue and lots of warning stages. And so I think he will take an off-ramp before he destroys the EU. Um, I don't think he has any intention to destroy the EU. Now, I, I mentioned before that I think Poland is a different case. Not that Poland is a different case with respect to destroying democracy. I mean, Poland has done, you know, in some ways, even more clumsy and illegal activities. In fact, that's why the commission finds it relatively easier to go after Poland than to go after Hungary, because Poland violates its own laws. You know, Orban changes the law in Hungary the day before he does something. So you can never say that Orban's ever violating his own domestic laws. But Poland is a different case because the uh, the peace party actually believes what it says, which is to say there's actually an ideology they're committed to and they're in it for the ideology. So, so far, I don't think they're as in it for the money as Orban is. And that's why I'm a little surprised that Orban's been able to hold this alliance together. Um, because while I think that peace is deeply offended that the commission thinks it has something to say about the Polish judiciary, um, you know, these are folks who will go to the mat for their ideology. And that's a very different situation than Orban, who is a strategic, uh, is an ideological chameleon who is only looking at the money. So that might be, you know, understanding the different motivations of Hungary and Poland may be a way to kind of pull them apart, which may be, again, one way to move some of the budget and the financial framework along. I might say that, you know, in the last couple of days uh, before we've made this recording, there's starting to be some news that perhaps the EU is starting to finally do the same thing and say perhaps the recovery fund and the own resources initiative can be attached to an enhanced cooperation so that if Hungary and Poland don't want to sign on to rule of law constraints, then fine, they don't have to get the money. That strikes me as being the absolute best alternative. And the wonderful thing about enhanced cooperation is, of course, the condition, you know, the other 25, or it depends on Slovenia is now making noises that it may be to along with Hungary and Poland. But, you know, however many states want the recovery money and are willing to to abide by the rules, they can form an enhanced cooperation. And the point about enhanced cooperation is that the door always has to remain open to the other states that have not participated. That's different than an intergovernmental agreement, right? So with enhanced cooperation, what would be terrific is that we then need to say to people in Hungary, you would have gotten all of this you know, money to, and, and Hungary's badly hit by COVID right now. It's really one of the worst off states in the EU with a collapsing healthcare system. But, you know, you go back to Hungary and say, you know, Viktor Orban could have brought this money home if he was just willing to tolerate anti-corruption restraints, which is kind of all this mechanism is at this stage. And, you know, and but Hungary can join at any time if they accept those conditions. So enhanced cooperation would not only be a great message to send, we think you know these these constraints are important enough that we're willing to set up a separate system for them. But it leaves this persistent invitation open to Hungary and Poland that if they behave themselves, they can benefit from what the EU has to offer. And I think that's exactly the way we should be going right now. And I, I really hope the German presidency takes that route instead of taking the route of dropping Article 7 or compromising on this rule of law mechanism. Thank you, um, Mr. Lagodinsky. Do you do you agree on this? Yes, I actually from also from the very beginning was was uh, the one of the first voices uh, um, within the parliament who said that we should consi uh, consider consider um, uh, seeing it in a quite simple way. 
if you don't want the money, don't take the money. Um, so, um, and we just go, go along without you. Um, uh, we, we need to reverse this um, blame game and, and, and reversal of uh, 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 perpetrators uh, and, and uh, victims that we're seeing here, uh, where many politicians from Poland and from Hungary are trying to portray it as kind of the EU pressuring their countries. It's the other way around. Uh, um, they are um, uh, uh, taking hostage um, our budgetary situation in the, in, in, in the time of the most serious crisis that we have and hopefully will ever uh, live through uh, in our history, post-war history. Um, and this is the sole responsibility of the governments in Budapest and Warsaw to get their act together and to agree to a mechanism that will never, if we are honest, will never endanger and threaten them to any sufficient degree. And we just talked about the constraints that this mechanism um, uh, contains now also because of their pressure. So this is basically a, a, a misuse of their vote that we're uh, um, seeing now. Uh, it's it's a, a total betrayal vis-a-vis uh, -vis countries like Spain, Italy, and other southern um, uh, European countries who are in desperate need of the credits on the free market. And this is precisely what we're looking for through the recovery funds to allow them to finance themselves and capitalize. Um, and they betray, frankly, also um, their own citizens, for example, in Hungary, who are also in a very difficult uh, economic situation. So it's not the EU that is pressuring them, but it's them uh, who are uh, taking hostage um, the budget, the two budgets uh, that we're, we're talking about in a historical uh, historical moment. So I uh, uh, do agree that uh, talking about enhanced cooperation mechanism um, is is the right way to go. I do agree also um, that um, stopping Article Seven procedure would be the biggest mistake um, that we would would have um, and, and we would see uh, by the German presidency. And German presidency does not want to associate there are six months with this one huge, um, uh, basically destruction of the uh, uh, um, of the union as a rule of law union, uh, uh, because this would be a wrong signal um, uh, to everyone uh, in the union that you can win, you can prevail, you can destroy democracy and, and rule of law as much as you can at the end you will be on the winning side. And this would be the wrong signal to do. This is number one. Number two, uh, trading Article 7 for this new mechanism, conditionality mechanism, because I've explained and we've explained all the deficiencies and problems with that, it is not a mechanism that you can launch and trigger very easily. But there are two mechanisms that are ongoing and stopping them without any substantial benefit for the advancing for advancing of rule of law would be the biggest mistake, even like in a kind of a cost benefit analysis that you see, um, because then again uh, uh, the 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 I wouldn't call them rock state because you know but uh, the <laughs> the problematic governments let's put it uh, diplomatically um, would also win on that side. We will pro pro we'll practically only have procedures in front of the European Court of Justice. 
uh, that are ongoing and rightly so, but we will not have any political uh, uh, mechanisms that would be feasible uh, for any institution. Thank you very much. Um, you have said that um, the Hungarian government is not only um, harming the EU, but it's, it is harming its own citizens. Um, and I would like to, to take a step back and ask you whether there are any shortcomings of linking EU funding that often works on the local level to the rule of law. Is the population being sanctioned? Um, this would be one question. And the other question would be, is this um, rule of law mechanism purely negative or are there any incentives and safeguards aiming at improving the rule of law in the member state that is being sanctioned? So is there any chance that Viktor Orban is, is going to say, well, I need the money, um, I'm going to, to rewrite um, the Hungarian constitution in a way that is um, that, that complies with, with uh, rule of law standards again, um, Professor Schäfer. Um, Every time this topic has come up about cutting funds, and I must say I've been talking to people in the commission, the, the parliament, and you know for 10 years on the subject, what they always say is, Well, it's the ultimate beneficiaries, you know, that we're worried about. It's the people who get this money after it passes through the state. And in fact, one aspect of this new conditionality mechanism is that the ultimate beneficiaries are going to be protected. So here's the problem. If Viktor Orban is mostly giving this money to his friends, then the Hungarian public is already not really benefiting from this money. And I was worried this was another compromise that was made in the course of of negotiating this conditionality mechanism, that the ultimate beneficiaries are going to be protected. So the money will still go to them if the state has awarded the money to them, as I understand it. So all Viktor Orban needs to do is to get whatever money is available on day one, just pass it out to all of his friends, wait for the sanctions, and then all of his friends still get the money. <laughs> you know, so so there's a this effort to try to protect the Hungarian people. I think will backfire, um, actually, because what will ultimately happen is that Orban's friends will be protected. So there's a number of compromises that were made in the course of this conditionality regulation that I can't believe we're going to the mat to defend it because it's weaker. Although I must say, the parliament did an amazing thing in the trialogues to strengthen it as much as they could. That was a miracle, I think. Still, it's not a perfect mechanism. So, you know, I think, will the Hungarian people be hurt? The Hungarian people are already hurt. They're hurt by the fact that they have a government they can't get rid of. Viktor Orban, I think this is really something that's not widely known because he keeps talking about his two-thirds majority in parliament. That's a, part, that's a majority that's engineered by having a rigged system of election rules. Viktor Orban's popularity in Hungary rarely goes above 30%, 35%, uh, even at the times when he's elected. And so he winds up benefiting from a very skewed set of election rules that give him these super majorities when he doesn't have this majority. The Hungarian public has been saying over and over that they don't want him, but he's rigged the system so that there is no way to get rid of him. So I think it's really important to recognize with respect to Hungary that we're already talking about essentially a dictatorship And the Varieties of Democracy Project, which is a very good sort of academic effort that tries to to monitor and classify governments already does not classify Hungary as a democracy. So we have to talk about, you know, that's what we're talking about. Again, Poland is a different situation. So 
In Poland, the government has not yet dominated all of the levers of power. There's still a reasonable opposition if you were to have free and fair elections. Um, there still is, you know, they haven't been able to capture even the judiciary, which they're trying very, very hard to capture. So, you know, their intervention can roll back a process. In Hungary, I think things are so entrenched that we have to start thinking about other mechanisms of trying to bring about a democratic rule of law state in Hungary. And so one of the things I'm looking forward to is to, I mean, the rule of law mechanism is really crucial. But the treaties also require that member states be democratic. And so I'm looking ahead to thinking about how do we enforce that aspect of Article 2, right? And this is where it seems to me that looking at, for example, are the political parties, <laughs> political parties in a democratic system. So one of the reasons for thinking about kicking Fidesz out of not just the EPP, but out of contestation for European elections is that it's become a party of autocrats. And, you know, I think that we have to look even further into the treaties to ask, to what extent does it make sense? I mean, the whole democratic legitimacy of the EU, when people talk about democracy deficits, right, the usual answer is the parliament's elected, which is terrific. But as I'm sure um, Sergei will say, the parliament isn't as powerful as it should be. So then what does the democratic legitimacy of the EU rest on? It rests on the fact that each of its individual member state governments are democratic governments. And we now have a government in the EU that is no longer democratic. The people in Hungary cannot get rid of Orban, even if they want to. <laughs> and for a long time, I think majorities have wanted to, but they can't. So that's the next thing we're going to have to confront. Right now, we're talking still about rule of law, which is to say, you know, does a government even follow its own laws? Does it honor the laws of the EU? But I think we've got even deeper problems with Hungary. Again, with Poland, the process of, of anti-democratic consolidation is still at an early enough phase that you can roll it back. Yeah, so these are, these are really two separate cases. The rule of law mechanism is still important for both, okay? But I think we have to realize that with Hungary, changing things there will require more than this. I, I agree with, with the question, and I, I, I agree with Kim, that we cannot um, just work with negative agenda only. We need to ask ourselves, uh, um, how can we uh, reinforce or redesign certain elements of uh, our uh, European Union structure uh, or our self-understanding to to support uh, democratic structures and to, to support civil society. And that's why, by the way, I'm a rapporteur uh, of the parliament of the Legal Affairs Committee for um, um, uh, a statute on NGOs um, and nonprofits. And this is um, something, this project is very dear to my heart uh, because I think it's time to talk about a pan-European civil society. Um, a situation where it, it becomes absolutely normal to have um, an NGO um, which uh, works on many sides of the borders and uh, which, which aligns people uh, of various citizenships and which can be registered in Brussels as, an, uh, as a European NGO. We have European... Um, uh, we, we have European you know, entities, the companies, we have status for everything but we don't have a status for European NGOs. Um, and this would 
both uh, reinforce and protect uh, European uh, uh, civil society. And this is the goal that I think, you know, this is my personal kind of positive agenda. It's not against someone. It's not against any government. It's pro-civil society, pro-people who want to work together across borders uh, in the European uh, level and not being harassed by a certain government who decides that they want to destroy an NGO that gets foreign money. Um, so, so this is, for example, one element of this democratization agenda that uh, Kim also uh, mentioned uh, when we talked um, about this. So and I think we should think about that more. And we also should maybe think about kind of the global aspect of what we're seeing here. Um, I think that our Polish friend, friends uh, who are very cautious about the role of Moscow and the role of Kremlin, um, uh, interference uh, from there, uh, should understand that they are willingly or unwillingly playing on the wrong side of this new uh, divide that we're seeing, the divide between liberal democracies and authoritarian regimes. Uh, and it would be, by the way, very interesting to see uh, what the new Biden administration from the United States, how they would contribute, um, or the mere fact that it's not Trump anymore, would contribute to the dynamics, especially in Warsaw, who are very dependent on uh, uh, and, and, and self-dependent, they want it, uh, on transatlantic cooperation. And, for example, who would be invited if we will have a conference of democracies, uh, that uh, Biden is, is trying to organize, which European countries would be invited and which wouldn't. Uh, my proposal would be to invite Poles, but not invite uh, Hungarians, which would be a very important kind of characteristic signal uh, in, 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 in both directions. So we, we also should see that what is going on here is much more fundamental and monumental than just as a, a quarrel and a, and a fight between uh, you know, Merkel and Orban. We are deciding here about the future of liberal democracy worldwide, because if European Union um, is, is, is being weakened as a democratic player, then democracy worldwide is, worldwide is, going, is going to be weakened. Yeah, I agree with that, com that completely. And I, I just want to say that those of us in the US are massively relieved that our democracy worked against the toughest stress test we've had in modern times. And so, and we're still, you know, working on, is there going to be an orderly transition to a new administration? Um, just one thing to say about the U.S. government uh, and the new team that, um, that Joe Biden is putting in place. The new uh, nominee for Secretary of State has a Hungarian mother and a Hungarian stepmother. <laughs> and his father was ambassador to Hungary in the 90s when I lived there. Um, and in fact, the Open Society Archive of Central European University is named after the Blinkens, you know. So actually, so uh, Antony Blinken, who is the Secretary of State uh, designate now, although he has to get through a tough confirmation process, um, knows Hungary extremely well. And one thing that's not much known about Joe Biden and his wife Jill is that when they were married, um, their, one of their closest friends was Tom Lantos, who was the only Holocaust survivor to serve in the Hungarian Congress, and of course, and in, in the American Congress, sorry. And he's Hungarian, of course. And uh, at the Lantos's suggestion, the Bidens had their honeymoon at Lake Balaton in Hungary. 
So we actually have, um, you know, a Hungarian wired government going in when, and Joe Biden was of course on the Senate foreign relations committee for many years. So they know exactly what's happening with Hungary. And you can feel it in talking to folks at the state department that they're so relieved, first of all, that all these professional people who have been in foreign relations for a long time are coming back. But it just happens that the particular configuration of people who are coming into these official positions know Hungary better than you would guess. And Poland as well. And I might say my own congressman, I'm so delighted, was just reelected, is Tom Malinowski, who was, of course, born in Poland. He was the Washington director for Human Rights Watch. He was the assistant secretary for democracy, human rights and labor under Obama. And now he's a member of Congress and on the on the House um, Foreign Affairs Committee. So we have people throughout the U.S. government who are really, really deeply knowledgeable about Hungary, about Poland, very committed to the EU and transatlantic relations. And so I'm really optimistic that this will give a boost to, um, you know, the liberal democracy. If I can just say one other thing back to the region about about this, that I know we've all been focused on Russia and, you know, the Russian threat is very well um, documented in the European press, but I think we also need to keep our eye on China. So one thing Hungary has engineered is the 16 plus one, which is now I think a 17 plus one cooperation with China. And I think that Orban has seen coming for a long time, the fact that the EU may go after his funding. And I think he's been lining up money less from Russia, which is not as flush with cash as it used to be, but much more so with China. Orban and, you know, the Hungarians have signed friendship agreements with Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, the Gulf states. So they're looking for, I mean, there really is, I think, a new Cold War, not between communism and capitalism, because everybody's more or less a capitalist these days, but between liberal democracy and autocratic rule. And frankly, autocratic rule is looking pretty good right now because, you know, you can ha- you can engage in long-term planning. Your word will be kept across, well, you don't have to really b- worry about elections radically changing policy. And Orban has for years been lining up Hungary with all the autocratic rich regimes in the world. And I think he's got those as kind of a backup if the European Union stops funding him. Orban is the kind of guy who shall we say, is so intent on clinging to power that he will have a backup plan and a backup plan and a backup plan. So the first stage is, I think, looking at the use of EU funds, both for what it means for the EU to defend an autocratic regime, but also for, you know, um, the role, the spoiler role that Hungary is now playing in European politics. But I think we shouldn't shouldn't underestimate Orban's creativity his so-called Eastern turn in foreign policy, which is now almost a decade old, has resulted in a series of agreements, which, by the way, are kept as state secrets in Hungary. But every once in a while, one of these things pops up on the website of another state. So I was delighted to see um, the Hungarian-Turkmenistan friendship agreement pop up in Russian on the famously transparent Turkmen government website. <laughs> and so I've been collecting these things. And what you see is that, you know, there are all kinds of agreements that are probably in violation of EU law, like energy agreements, for example, with Turkmenistan, um, you know, solo uh, agreements that have not been sent to, you know, DG Energy, for example. Um, and so Orban is building a kind of backup plan. He's not the kind of guy who's going to get caught out by this. So this is the first stage, dealing with rule of law issues in the EU. I think the second stage is going to be dealing with democracy issues in the EU. 
And then the third stage is going to be what to do when you've got a state that's nominally a member, because of course there is no way to throw a member out. And with Hungary and Poland, there's no way to remove their vote, you know? And so the question is what to do with really a kind of hostile power within that is, is making agreements with other member states, with other states that are not members that don't have the EU's interests at heart. And I think that kind of security risk down the road, not just with regard to Russia, but particularly with regard to all of these other states, um, because Russia's sort of too much in the spotlight, I think, but, you know, not too much, but I mean, Russia's enough in the spotlight that you can sort of see what the issue is. But we haven't highlighted the role of, of China, the Gulf states, you know, the, the oil-rich states of the former Soviet Union, which are all now in these friendship agreements with Orban. So this is just the first stage of what I think is going to be a very long struggle for the EU. And we're only beginning to grapple with the magnitude of this issue. You know, if the EU had a way to throw Hungary out, it should, but it doesn't. So we got to figure out what do you do with a member state that has left the EU ideologically and is no longer really part of the cooperation, but that is still sitting at the table with a vote. So that's going to be the next set of issues. We're just seeing the beginning of this now with the budget. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I think uh, both of you have already foreshadowed and partly answered, I, I guess, my, my final question. Um, but I'm going to pose it to you anyway, um, which was um, to, to take a look at the state of the union, so to speak, at the end of 2020. How does the EU do in comparison with other unions and federations, such as the United States or Russia? How does it cope with the issues and conflicts um, that are the result of erecting a rule of law system within a union that aims to keep up diversity? Um, Mr. Lagodinsky, would you like to start? Well, I think, I think we should be careful about what we're comparing, because, of course, the EU is not a federation. It's not even a confederation, depending on how you want to, you know, it's a supranational um, organization with all the uh, drawbacks and, and problems that um, are connected to that. And that's why, of course, it's easy to compare it to the Russian Federation to say, oh, in Russian Federation, all the, the, the federal subjects, as they're called there, the, the federal units, um, they don't rebel against Moscow. Yeah, well, of course they, they don't because they know what, what this would entail. <laughs> <laughs> and even legally, they cannot do much. Uh, and and uh, in the United States, we have, you know, in a, a different shading, but uh, structurally um, also a different story. But I think that the uh, European Union, uh, to be honest, um, our crisis, the, the COVID crisis, and the way how the European Union dealt with the COVID crisis, I wouldn't be that uh, negative. I think that we, um, you know, let's not forget about the, the first couple of weeks where the solidarity was tested and uh, not all countries um, um, have mastered that test uh, to our liking. But uh, a couple of la weeks later already, and this, is, this was not too long, uh, von der Leyen was playing a, an active role. There was a cooperation and there is still a, a cooperation. We, we see that the borders, the Schengen borders are not closed now, uh, even though we're having the second wave. And of course, this major, major achievement of uh, uh, agreeing on having own resources on, 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 on the, 
and having this solidarity also in the financial um, area, this was, of course, a big achievement. And that's why it hurts to see that this achievement is being torpedoed now by um, two people, basically, who just, you know, one of them cares about the money and the other one um, uh, cares about the uh, so-called conservative traditions. Um, and uh, this would be a shame that we don't use, if we don't use this crisis uh, as a chance, I'm sorry, pardon me for this, using this very, <laughs> very uh, um, old uh, uh, picture, but um, it, it, it could be a chance for us. And it is a chance for us uh, to, to develop and to grow um, as, a, as a union. But this thing, among other things, of course, we had a set back uh, also with the situation with the Constitutional Court of Germany and the decision regarding the European Central Bank where um, the authority of the European Court of Justice was put into questions and the Polish colleagues right away used it uh, for their own purposes. Um, but I, again, I think this, this is something that, is, that can be manageable. I think that the rule of law situation that we're having now is something that is going into substance and, and, and kind of eroding us from inside. And this is something that we have to deal with and we have to manage. But other than that, it might be counterintuitive, but if we get the enhanced cooperation deal, for example, now, and by that show that we can act, we still can act together and can solve problems, um, I think that I can say that the European Union, from my perspective, has outgrown itself through this year. And maybe we have become a better union by the beginning of, of next year, uh, especially if we have the vaccine. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Schepper, your take on the state of the union. Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, that the EU is not a federation. Um, and it's not a federation because it doesn't have a supreme constitution that is binding across the board on all subject areas to all member states. And it's exactly in that, in that disjuncture between EU competencies on one hand and national competencies on the other that you get these, this rise in autocracy. So you could think of it as a failed federation, but I would rather think of it as a special international organization. Because what international organizations do is they come together for particular purposes, defined by treaties as the EU has. But what most international organizations have is they retain the option of self-help, right? Which is that if a treaty is breached, the, the states that signed that treaty can take matters into their own hands and punish the violators. Now, it turns out the EU still has a remnant of self-help in it showing that it has its organization, it has its, its roots in international organizations rather than in federations. And what are those self-help mechanisms? Well, the main self-help mechanism is in Article 259 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. And this is a mechanism um, that allows one member state to take another member state to the court of justice for violating basic principles of EU law. Now that mechanism hasn't been used very often. And part of the reason why we think it hasn't been used very often is that if a member state chooses to do that, its first stop is that it has to go to the commission. And in the past, when the commission has looked at meritorious cases that have arisen out of this process, 
the commission joins the case and then it becomes an ordinary infringement. So in other words, you don't see the successful cases because the commission adopts them. Instead, you see the wacky cases, right? Like where, you know, where Hungary slew Slovakia for preventing Blazil Shoyam from crossing the bridge into Slovakia or you know other cases where the court of justice looks at these things and says, this is crazy. So article 259 has kind of gotten a bad reputation because you only see the end result, not the process. So this is where I've been very encouraged that when the commission has been missing in action on, you know, I mean, especially on Hungary, but we're going to start with Poland, where there's ongoing, really egregious, active stuff going on in the moment, um, where the commission hasn't acted, where the council has been hamstrung by either unanimity or politeness, um, that finally we're starting to see a number of the member states um, getting anxious about this and believing that the rule of law is one of those things that cannot be abridged in a member state without really affecting and, and coming back on and hitting the interests of the other member states. So the Dutch parliament this week voted 70% majority to tell the Dutch government, start preparing an Article 259 action against Poland and check to see whether other member states are willing to join in. That happened on the same day that a commission action against Poland was being argued at the Court of Justice, in which the Netherlands, together with Belgium, Finland, Sweden, and Denmark, went to the ECJ and made arguments before the ECJ that the rule of law situation in Poland was sufficiently serious that these five member states walked into the ECJ and frankly made stronger arguments than the commission did about how important the rule of law is for the maintenance of the union itself. And what does it tell you when you've got five member states? And they've also been very active in the rule of law mechanism that we've been talking about today as well. Five member states are willing to go to the mat and say, we will engage in self-help unless you guys get your act together and ensure that the rule of law is enforceable everywhere in the EU. So this is where it's important to think of the, of the, of the EU not as a federation, but as an inter international organization that suspended the usual principle of self-help by, by entrusting the institutions of the EU to enforce EU law. But that self-help mechanism is still there in the background and if the institutions fail to enforce EU law, the member states can take it back into their power to do it themselves. And we've seen this already because the Dutch courts have now been refusing to turn over suspects on the basis of a European arrest warrant to Poland. Ireland tried that and they went out by themselves and they sort of backed down. But Norway, um, which is in the, which is at least a member of the EEA, has now refused judicial cooperation with Poland. And what we're going to start seeing is not so much a destruction of the EU as a federation, but we're going to see the EU go from being a very special and unique kind of international organization to being a garden variety international organization in which the member states feel like self-help is the only thing they can do to protect themselves from the other member states. And that is a really serious unraveling of the basic principle that brings the EU together. So that's the state we're in right now. And that's what member states, that's what the, the high rule of law state um, defenders are gonna start doing. So two things, 
One is that I'm really puzzled by why Germany's not in that set. Because Germany has really set the standard, and you see it exactly in this PSPP case of the Federal Constitutional Court. The German Constitutional Court has defined the rule of law for the rest of Europe in so many ways. So why is Germany not out there in the front lines of, of saying, especially with the German presidency of the council, why is Germany not out there as one of those rule of law states saying enough is enough, we have to, uh, we have to force the institutions to do what they're capable of? If I may react to this briefly, this was precisely my um, concern at the beginning of the uh, uh, German presidency, because I think that um, being a, a presidency generally and being a presidency under the presidency of Merkel or under the chancellor of Merkel um, brings uh, the, the country and society in a special position. And especially knowing our chancellor, it is a position of trying to bring compromises to bring countries together and that's why i never believed that the weight that germany has politically would benefit the rule of law agenda um during this six months maybe and this is my hope uh germany would kind of emancipate itself from the presidency from the burden of presidency in the upcoming months because when we hear what uh um, um minister Roth for example, is saying, uh, they are saying mostly the right things. But when it is about uh, implementing them where they rely on, on other members, they, without, you know, trying to, to uh, defend them, but kind of trying to explain maybe the dynamics that we're seeing here. But yes, it is uh, indeed uh, disappointing, especially for someone from the opposition uh, uh, in Germany, uh, to see that the hopes um, have been, in a sense, um, a little bit betrayed and a little bit disappointed uh, during the past six months. But to be honest, I didn't expect much more. Uh, the thing now is how do we uh, try to limit the damage uh, and, and how do we try to um, motivate this presidency not to enter deals that will be irreversible for the future. And one deal would be, for example, stopping Article 7 uh, procedure. So I do hope for a, a more courageous Germany after the beginning of next year. Let's hope. And let's hope Germany doesn't do something before the beginning of next year when it's sitting in the presidency that everyone will regret if they believe in the rule of law. Thank you very much, MEP Lagodinsky and Professor Scheple for talking with us about financial sanctions and concluding our rule of law series. This has been We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law, the podcast addressing the rule of law crisis in the European Union, brought to you by Verfassungsblock and the German Bar Association Deutscher Anwaltverein. We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law has been hosted by Maximilian Steinweiss and Leonard Kokot. Thanks to Dorothee Wild, Niklas Müller and Eva Schriever of the German Bar Association and to Isabella Falkner and Jochen Schlenk of Verfassungsblock. Thanks to our 37 guests from 13 countries in the EU and beyond. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening week after week. And remember, we continue to need to talk about the rule of law. <laughs>